Hi everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is very late in the day, Monday the 28th of October, but we're ready into the fifth day of Kislev, 5783. It's been a long day, I've been out all day, so um, I don't know how long this podcast is going to last, but I really, really, really wanted to share with you uh, some disturbing new information that I read about in the last couple of days. And of course, when it comes to disturbing information having to do with Israel, who do I turn to? But Naomi Linder Khan of Rigavim, who is at the forefront of discovering the, the disturbing information and really doing an excellent job of disseminating it. What is done with it at the end of the day, though, is another issue. So for those of you uh, have had her on before, we'll be having her on again. Naomi, thank you. I know you had a really long day today. Um, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to this interview, which is kind of got kicked off because I read an article uh, about from uh, Yifat Erlich, although she says her English isn't good enough to be interviewed. So hence, I had to bother you. I'm so sorry um, about l- another violation of Oslo. Could it be? Could it be this one having to do with electricity? So we'll get that to that in a minute. But before we went on the air now, you and I were speaking about what you were doing today. So maybe fill my listeners in a little bit on uh, why we're not videoing this, because I don't want them to see the massive level of frustration and exhaustion (laughs) on your beautiful face. Exhaustion. Um, So first of all, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with someone who gets it uh, and for that conversation to be shared with other people who are interested in hearing about what's really going on. What I did today was what I do um, often, and that is that I spent hours out in the field showing foreign journalists what it is that we at Rigavim see when we look out of our windows in Judea and Samaria. Um, I take foreign journalists all over Israel, but today I had specific requests from a Norwegian journalist and from a German public broadcasting corporation uh, crew, television and radio. And we went out, uh, they uh, met with me after spending the first half of the day touring around with the Palestinians and a cadre of uh, uh, leftist organizations in what they call Masafar Yata. Masafar Yata, for anyone who doesn't know, is a name that has been uh, more or less created out of thin air. Uh, if you know any Hebrew or any Arabic, Masafar really means just the outlying areas around mm-hmm. the city, Masafar as in Spar in Hebrew. The, fring- um, the fringes Masafar- of, yes. The fringes of, right. So Masafar Yata has now um, been given this name, although in Israel is known, and on all maps uh, for the past many, many decades, it has been known as Firing Zones 917 and 918, IDF-designated live training exercise areas uh, in the desert area connects the Negev to Judea and Samaria. It is the backyard of a number of Jewish communities, Carmel, Maon, Malechever. The, sa- um, the, South Hev- the South Hebron Hills. Correct. That's what South we call Hebron it. Right. Hills connection to East Gush mm-hmm. Uh And what has happened there over the years, strangely enough, is that it, this empty area that was uh, declared state land, it was state land in the, under the Ottoman regime, it was state land under the Jordanian regime, it is state land under the Israeli regime, uh, and there has never been any settlement in there. So the state of Israel uh, in the 1980s declared this area as a live 
training zone for IDF forces to do ground training exercises and live ammunition training. Um, it was actually uh, in this area that Bedouin from Yatta used to sleep in the caves, the natural caves in the, in the desert area during certain seasons. Uh, they would graze their flocks and rather than going back to Yatta at night, they would sleep in the caves and then go back when the season shifted. I just um, want to say tour guide mode for a second. Yatta is a very old city that mm-hmm. is actually mentioned in the Bible as belonging to the tribe of Judah way back in the day. I believe it's city of Kohanim, if I'm not mistaken. Indeed, yes. actually. It's a very sad story Priest. that I like to tell people uh, when I take them to Susia. Susia mm-hmm. overlooks Yatta. Susia is an ancient city also mm-hmm. that was founded when uh, the priests had to leave Jerusalem when the second temple was destroyed. They moved mm-hmm. to this area and they set up a city. Um, and eventually the problem was, and this is a lesson I think that we need to take to heart uh, as we go further into our discussion. The, the, the priests uh, were not a productive society. Um, they were a holy cadre of teachers and mm-hmm. uh, educators and uh, they they did other things, but their connection to the ground, to the earth, was far less strong than right. other tribes of Israel. Uh, eventually, when times got hard, they um, the priests actually founded Yatta, uh, and they intermarried, and mm-hmm. they uh, became Muslims, and they intermarried with the local Bedouin tribes. And if you ask the Bedouin of Yatta today what their roots are, they will tell you. The, they, uh, that, that their ancestors were Jewish priests who converted to Islam. Yeah, I believe that about 50 or 60 years ago, actually, the Mukhtar of Yatta gave the archaeologist Yigal Yadin a bag of Judaica, saying that they were afraid that they would be suspected of being Jews. Of course, it was theirs from their ancestors. Yeah. Correct. So the, the Bedouin of Yatta were, were grazing and sleeping in the cave um, in the desert areas that were declared IDF firing zones. Um, Somewhere around 18 years ago, the IDF, meaning the civil administration, for reasons of its own, decided to allow Bedouin, who had started putting up tents in the firing zone, to stay there. What they did was they set aside uh, what they called polygons, certain areas where there were already Arab uh, Bedouin tents, and they said, if you stay within these areas, we will not move you off. We won't train in these areas. Uh, and we'll just uh, back off and leave you there and we'll reach some sort of detente. So this was illegal. Um, they had no authority to do so. And of course, the minute these polygons were right. set aside, the Palestinian Authority jumped in and began encouraging construction everywhere but inside the polygons, meaning outside of them. Uh, in areas to connect the, the polygons in order to create a, a large settlement block on the back fences, literally back fences of the Jewish communities in the area uh, and so on and so on. So you were showing the, the German, you were showing the Germans and the Norwegians this today? Correct. I showed them maps. I showed them aerial photographs. I showed them uh, archival material dating back to the 1930s. So they can't actually claim that it was Israel who removed these, quote unquote, ancient villages or whatever they want to call them there. There was nothing there. There was never anything there. There had never been anything there until around the year 2000, 
when Bedouin mm-hmm. started to come in, and then the Palestinian Authority. Now, of course, all of this happens only when the land in these areas becomes either economically or politically important right? Uh, because of the Jewish communities there. There's an economy that has been created. The land has value. Mm-hmm. There are political uh, forces at, at work. So the Palestinian Authority began to incentivize Bedouin from Yatta to move into the firing zone and build homes there, incentivize them by providing them with land, with building materials, with tax incentives, uh, and in some cases with cash payments. Um, so, well, what also happens, from my understanding, is once you have Jewish communities there, you have sewage lines and you have water lines and you have proper uh-huh. infrastructure, none of which the Jordanians no. put in, to jump no, 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 to, no, no? none no. of that? There's no infrastructure at all, which is where for the, the Jewish comes. For the Jewish community, no, for the Jewish communities. The Jewish communities, the Jewish communities yeah. all have all this infrastructure. Right. But, exactly. But these quote-unquote villages that were being built in the firing zone mm-hmm. had none of these. Well, uh, right, So obviously. what is the... So what does the Palestinian Authority do? It brings in the Europeans. It shows them there are people living without infrastructure. The Europeans say, oh, we need humanitarian support for these people. The first thing that the Palestinian Authority does, which they've done all through Judea and Samaria, is they build a school. Mm -hmm. They build a school. And the Europeans say, oh, this school needs sewage. It needs running water. It needs electricity. It needs an access road. So they provide all of these things. And once you have a school... And you have roads and sewage lines and electricity lines and water lines, then you can build a community around the school. Mm-hmm. And they've done this all through Judea and Samaria. We actually released a report last summer documenting 100 illegal schools in Judea and Samaria built by the Palestinian Authority. You don't need to be a genius to figure this out. Right. Although Rigovim is a, a group of very, very clever people. What we did was we looked at this. Palestinian Authority's website, and we saw all of the schools that are listed as al-Tahadi schools, which means resistance schools. Mm-hmm. And we mapped them out, and we showed most of them are in places where there was no community. The ones that are in uh, areas such as Masafayata, where where I went to today, in the idea of firing zones, they're built in. Uh, they're built illegally. They're built in uh, closed military zones. They're built despite uh, military orders. They're built uh, despite demolition orders or work stop orders. And then a community grows up around it. Mm-hmm. So what happened last week is uh, one of the schools about which we had filed a complaint and a lawsuit and, and released a, um, a issued correspondence to the civil administration and all, all the things that we do in order to draw attention to this phenomenon. Uh, one of the schools was actually built overnight, less than two weeks ago. It was a a mobile unit brought in, anchored down to the ground, uh, furniture was moved in. Um, The very next morning, uh, work stop and demolition orders were issued, but the Palestinian Authority did what it does best. It took children and used them as props. It bust in a whole bunch of kids and put them in these classrooms so that when the demolition orders (laughs) were actually enforced, you had wailing children, you had screaming mothers, you had a, a, a host of uh, leftists and European journalists taking pictures. Because the terrible Jews are destroying little Arab we're children's denying, education. We're denying an education from the most vulnerable right. children. Now, these children weren't, the school had never been, this school was. <laughs> the a, whole thing was a, a, a show. It didn't theater. exist. It was yeah. exactly, it was more or less like a Universal Studios backdrop, right? Mm -hmm. Even less. Much more is invested in those than in any of this. But as soon as you say 
to the European Union. This is a school. They give it a name. Uh, they take pictures. And then Israel is the villain. And, uh, and we're denying these people an education. And how could we possibly be so cruel? Now, right. they have such harsh conditions to get to the nearest school. Well, you know why that is? Because mm. you've built it in a place where there's no community. There's no roads. <laughs> there's no infrastructure. And it is in a live firing zone. It's amazing. So just... if you don't build a school there, you won't have difficult conditions to get to the school. Right. And there are schools, plenty of schools, that are already available to these children in the areas where they actually do live under Palestinian authority control. Matter of fact, we have mapped out that in areas under already under Palestinian authority control, areas A and B, almost 70% of the land reserves are empty, undeveloped, and ready for them to build anything they want. That includes housing, that includes schools, that includes commerce, anything they want without any Israeli involvement. Mm -hmm. But instead, they use all of their resources to, to build politically, to take over, to annex land that is under Israeli control. And the Israeli government to date has shown tremendous, shall we call it reticence? Shall we call it cowardice? It's afraid to confront the European funders of all of this and say, what you're doing is not only a violation of our sovereignty and our rights, it is also a violation of international law. And it is a tremendous disservice to the Palestinian children themselves who are being stuck in substandard uh, facilities where they're not really intended to be educated. They're intended to be used as place markers to help the Palestinian Authority take over territory. So, so okay, so Naomi, we could talk like for hours and hours and hours about the stuff you're doing, but I want to specifically concentrate on the issue of the electricity, okay, and what they're doing, um, which as an Israeli taxpayer, when I see that they owe a billion, a billion shekels, to the Israel, like I've got it. If I don't pay my bill every month, my electricity gets shut off. So specifically to go, and I'm going to also, I think, put the link to the article in the, uh, in the paragraph for this, um, for this, for this podcast. So tell us what's been uncovered now when it comes, because all of this is based on having electricity. Right. Where is their electricity coming from? So that is what we asked ourselves as well. We see all of these illegal structures going up. We see them uh, in strategic areas. We see, and we just looked and we said, okay, there are lights on in there. Mm -hmm. There are people living in there. They obviously have electricity. Where is it coming from? We began to look around. We expected to see generators. Um, we didn't. We expected to see some sort of uh, Palestinian authority something. Instead, what we found was electrical poles, and you can see them all around Efrat. You can see them by... Uh, the northern Efrat entrances, you can see them around Kiryat Arba area, you can see them to, to Ramallah, Jericho, all the way to the eastern border with Jordan. What they are is electrical poles with a sign on them that says Jerus East Jerusalem Electric Company. Okay. So we started asking questions. Who's the East Jerusalem Electric Company? It's actually a subsidiary of the Israel Electric Company at this point. At one point, before 1967, the East Jerusalem Electric Company was a Jordanian corporation. Uh, it, since 1967, it has become a subsidiary, a licensed subsidiary. It buys electricity from the Israel Electric Company. It doesn't produce electricity. It buys electricity from the Israel Electric Company and provides it to certain Palestinian 
population centers in the Jerusalem environs, Ramallah, Jericho, uh, Jordan Valley as well. Now, in addition to all of that, there's the Palestinian Electric Company. Part of the Oslo framework uh, was the concept of Palestinian energy independence. In order to become a viable entity of some sort of self-rule, they had to become energy self-sufficient. Um, that has never happened. Uh, there's been absolutely no attempt to make that happen. Instead, the Palestinian Electric Company uh, and the, the East Jerusalem Electric Company um, buy electricity from the Israel Electric Company. Now, the Palestinian Authority itself ran up debts to the Israel Electric Company in the billions. And eventually, um, when it, things came to a head, the decision was made. The Palestinian, the Palestinian Authority requested that the state of Israel reduce um, the amount that it owed for electricity from the amount that Israel transferred to it every month uh, from taxes that it collects for the Palestinian Authority. So um, the Palestinian Authority's debts to the electric company, and in other words, to you and me, mm -hmm. uh, have been reconciled. Okay. But the, the East Jerusalem electric company continues to run up bills and no such agreement or arrangement has ever been made. So the bills keep rising and no payments are forthcoming at all. Now, this would be bad enough, except that the East Jerusalem Electric Company operates as an arm of Palestinian independence and says so. So essentially, you have an Israeli company, um, subsidiary of a publicly held uh, electric Provide, electricity provider, our national carrier, that is operating as an arm of the Palestinian Authority and is essentially siphoning off billions in electricity to pay for, to, 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 not to pay for, but to support the territorial takeover of Area C <laughs> through illegal construction. So you and I and every other Israeli taxpayer are essentially helping the Palestinian Authority steal our over, land. Wow. Steal our land through illegal construction that is hooked up free of charge to the electric grid. Uh, and this is happening right outside all of our windows. Nobody ever thought about it until we started to look into it. No one ever uh, tried to spotlight the absurdity of this situation and to demand answers from our government, which is essentially not only allowing this to happen, but it, but keeping the lid on all of it. Mm -hmm. The state of Israel is perfectly capable of, of stopping this situation and has done nothing about it. So we think it's time. We think it's time that we get some answers. We think it's time that we stop playing this game as if there is someone on the other side of this equation that wants to be an honest partner in the future of this region. Uh, we think that if the state of Israel is actually the only thing that is propping up the Palestinian Authority and the only thing that is fueling or even allowing the takeover of land that is yours and mine, that it's time to put an end to it. Mm -hmm. With a lot of help from the European Union, of course, that yeah. they're allowing oh. to fund it. Do you oh. think that this new government, yeah, whatever it's made up of, will do anything? We only hope. We mm -hmm. certainly hope. Um, this is what we've been demanding, what we've been not only praying for, but actually working for for many years. 
it's gratifying that many of the issues that Brigavim has been uh, researching and pushing onto the public agenda for years and forcing politicians to contend with, or at least answer to, um, are now the core issues at the at the very, very basic level around which this coalition is being formed. Uh, many of our policy proposals, everywhere from the Negev to the Galilee and Judea and Samaria and many things in between, things having also to do with judicial reform and revamping the system of law or systems of law that are allowing us to be robbed of our birthright. All of these things have been issues Rigabin has been pushing for 15 and 16 years. And now they're finally really at the place, their rightful place in the public discourse, which is right at the top of the agenda. And we're hoping that uh, the coalition that will be formed, I, I have to tell you, I am i don't want to make political statements one way or the other, but I will say um, people who try to convince me that it's childish or petty or selfish for uh, potential co coalition partners to be holding things up and not uh, jumping in and, and trusting uh, the Netanyahu-led uh, coalition to <laughs> further these issues, I say, don't be naive. Uh, well, it's under Netanyahu-led governments for over a decade that all this has been happening. That's precisely the point. Mm -hmm. So don't take anything for granted. This is not petty. This is not selfish. This is the nitty-gritty of governance. This is how a democratic system uh, works. And this is how we as voters can rely on the people we have elected to see that the things we've elected them for actually happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm ready to wait. I'm ready to wait patiently to make sure that the, the issues, uh, that there are firm commitments to change in these core issues having to do with our governance and sovereignty and the future of this country. Um, it's critical. And mm -hmm. without getting it right this time, if we don't get it right this time with this coalition that's been uh, voted in, it will be inexcusable and it will right. be tragic, potentially right. disastrous. And possibly irreversible because every single day Correct. that goes on, they're building more and more and more in Area C, which according Correct. to the Oslo Accords that they signed are under Israeli control. Correct. And they're just there taking it over minute by minute. We've, we've, we've tried our most recent study, which you can see on our website, it's called the War of Attrition 2022. At present, there are more than 81,000 illegal Arab built structures in Area C. Unbelievable. Just to give you an idea, you know, they're always talking about how Jew illegal Jewish settlement, et cetera, et cetera. Since the signing of the Oslo Accords to date, till this very day, the grand total of illegal structures built in the Jewish sector in Judea and Samaria amounts to about 4,100, 4,100. The amount wow. of illegal Arab structures built is, as I said, over 81,000. Wow. Wow. Now, 20 even times. Now, even when they, that, that's at, uh, at, in the past year, we actually tracked in the past year, the rate of construction increased under Benny Gantz by 80%. So it's mm -hmm. important to us that the person who is in charge of all of this knows exactly what we're up against and is not going to decide to create a Palestinian state single-handedly as Benny Gantz was trying to do. 
Well, for people so, who aren't aware, as defense minister, essentially the defense minister of Israel controls Judea and Samaria. Since correct. Israel, it's under, I mean, you, I live under military occupancy. Correct. In Judea. Correct. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what we're trying to change. What We've, uh, we've got very uh, clear policy uh, proposals to set to set legislation in motion immediately once the government is sworn in. We hope that those things will um, be included in the coalition agreement uh, and that we can get going from day one because mm-hmm. all this situation is ludicrous and it is a situation we is the state of Israel has created and yes. only we, the state of Israel can correct. So mm-hmm. the time has come. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, at, at, at current rates of something around between seven and on the average of seven to eight new illegal Arab structures being built in, in Area C every day, the state Amazing. of Israel doesn't actually get itself going. Uh, the territory will be lost before we can blink. Mm-hmm. So it has to happen. Mm-hmm. All right. That's... Uh... I mean, it would be nice if we could actually put Israeli law on these areas and then have a different set of rules to go by rather than military rules. But that's another stage down the road. You know, just to add something, there was an interesting little chat on one of the tour guide lists that I'm on, because part of the Jordan Valley, where we go from Jerusalem up to the north, of course, goes through uh, the Jordan Valley itself is Area C, but part of it goes through areas near B and A. And one of the tour guides was saying that there's all this garbage on the side of the road when you pass through the Palestinian Authority areas. And when her tourists asked her what it is, she said, oh, it's just cultural differences. And I normally don't open my mouth and I normally <laughs> don't get political on the tour guides list. But I said, you know, I think this gives us an opportunity to explain. It's not cultural differences. It gives us an opportunity to explain that these are not areas under Israeli control. Not that Israelis are so wonderful about throwing their garbage on the ground either, by the way. Okay, but it's on a completely different level. And this gives us an an opening to explain why Israeli law on these areas is not just an ideological issue of the land of Israel, but on the day-to-day in terms of road safety and police on the roads and environmental issues and digging out quarries and stealing electricity and all these and dumping sewage, raw sewage in valleys and things that end up harming everybody living here, Jew and Arab alike, when you burn your garbage, which doesn't happen in Jewish villages, but does happen in many Arab villages, those toxic fumes go everywhere. They don't just go into Jewish lungs, they go into Arab lungs as well and Christian lungs. And um, so someone said, I don't want to get political. I said, this is this is the facts on the ground. If you're a tour guide in Israel, then you have to actually explain the situation. So it was interesting. I got a couple messages from people privately saying they agreed with me, but they didn't want to say anything out loud. And it was just amazing to me. Like, we're in a fight for our lives here. <laughs> people, right. what is going on with you? There's That's a responsibility. We, we, we say things out loud. That makes yes. us unpopular sometimes. Yeah. Uh, as I said to the journalist who spent the day with me, and I kept pulling out one map after another, and one aerial photo after another, and one land deed after another, and one historical document after another. And I said, wow, you're really into all these... Uh, facts. You know, all these, uh, <laughs> facts, yes. Facts. That's yeah. right. Truth, facts. Narrative. We want to deal in fact. We want to deal in law. That's all we have to keep us from devolving into chaos. And what do they say? Don't... What do they answer you when you throw they the said, stuff hmm. in their faces? Hmm. They said, hmm. hmm. But the Palestinians have, you know, 
they, they, you know, they, they don't have rights. I said, well, maybe they should ask their own leadership why it is that they haven't had elections. Right. Maybe they should ask their own leadership why they have no human rights, basic human rights. They should ask their leadership why it is that every penny that they receive, and they're the biggest recipients of aid in the world, every penny goes somewhere, but it's certainly not going to improving the lives of the people for which it is responsible. Mm -hmm. Ask that That's not something you can put on Israel. If no. you say you want autonomy and you want self-rule, you have to decide in advance that you're going to use that to make people's lives better and not to pollute the environment, destroy the land, and uh, abuse the people who are living on it. Not to mention aiding and abetting terrorism, which Correct. is like on Correct. a day, you know, on a daily level. And Correct. that's the most egregious thing of all, of course. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And the okay. biggest sufferers of the chaos in the Palestinian Authority are the Palestinians themselves. Mm -hmm. They are uh, people who are abused by their own. There are people whose future has been stolen by their own leadership. There are people who have uh, been used cynically by powers far greater than themselves. That, and I'm talking specifically about the European countries right. that are at their very heart uh, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish. And the Palestinians are an extremely convenient tool for uh, undermining the Jewish Jewish sovereignty and Jewish autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, these people are unfortunate. It's not that we have anything against them. I think any Israeli that you ask will say the same thing. Uh, as people, there's not a problem. The problem is that their leadership has turned this entire situation into a farce uh, by calling it a question of peace negotiations or a peace process or a human rights issue in any way. Well, I'm a, I'm a little more I'm a little more upset than that because I think the terror <laughs> no because I think the terrorism can't only be blamed on the leadership. There is there is uh, inherent violence in their society. Throw in Islamic jihadism, and uh, right. you know it's. But well, when you have yeah. three generations educated on hatred for Judaism, mm. Jews, Israel, Zionism, mm. it doesn't surprise me that that's what's happening. You right. poison the well. People who drink the water are poisoned. That's right. what it is. Then and we need to protect ourselves out. from it. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. What I said to the journalists today is what I'd like to leave you with. And that is, uh, if you want to talk to me about a Palestinian state, which I personally believe is an infantile way of looking at the world, either statehood or nothing. There are political uh, arrangements all over the world that don't involve statehood that work very, very well. The only thing you need is a willing partner. But when you want to tell me that there's a, that that you want to talk about Palestinian statehood, I will say to you, give me 50 years without an, uh, without terrorism and without violence and without anti-Zionism, and then we'll talk. Right. But unless those 50 years of quiet come first, I owe it to my children and grandchildren not to risk our lives and our future on some sort of ridiculous pipe dream. Yeah, and that I will agree with, with you completely. Naomi Linder Khan, I always learn so much from being with you. And uh, I don't know how you do this. I really don't. <laughs> but it's um, it's tremendous. The, the organization Regavim just does tremendous work. And I hope, I hope, I hope that the new government coming in will finally listen to what you're doing, take all your facts uh, seriously, and make a change, a change that has been well over a decade in coming. And uh, and hopefully this time around, really something will be done before. Absolutely. I don't know if it, we can never say things are too late when it comes to the <laughs> Jewish people in Israel, but still, 
um, <laughs> the question is always the price that we pay for mistakes that, is, that are made. Indeed. And yeah, and as mothers and grandmothers here in Israel, that's not a price that we would like to see paid if it can all be held. So thank you for joining me. Um, thanks. thanks to my listeners for tuning in. And, and thanks to Ben and Tabitha for getting the show out. So Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Always things going on here. Just uh, never a dull moment. I hope wherever you are, you're well. And, uh, and take care, everybody. And goodbye for now. Join the Land of Israel Network Fellowship. Sign up today and join the revolution, inviting the world to learn Torah from Judea with Jeremy Gimpel and Arya Bromowitz. We may come up short on becoming the person we want to be, but that's not the point. Happiness is progress. Wandering aimlessly through a meaningless life is a recipe for suffering. What could be worse than walking around the desert for absolutely nothing? But as long as we are walking toward the land of Israel, every step has purpose. For more information, visit thelandofisrael.com slash fellowship.